0: Hello, and welcome to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Nino DeMarco, CEO of the Royal Flying Doctors Service, Queensland. It's a beautiful morning here in Brisbane. And as I sit in my office and look out the window, the sky is completely blue. There's not a cloud to be seen. And I feel really just happy and excited about what uh, great things are happening in 2016 already. The uh, feedback I'm getting from this podcast is just getting better and better. And I really appreciate everybody's comments and encouragement uh, via emails and uh, through LinkedIn. And uh, certainly uh, keep them coming. It's, uh, it's very good for my ego. And I think it's good also for the guests who are coming on to get direct feedback about their uh, stories and uh, the value that people are getting out of listening to them. So please make contact with those people whose podcasts you've enjoyed and let them know uh, how you have valued what they've had to say. So here we are again, it's another Arate podcast. And for those people unfamiliar with me, I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive. We're a Brisbane-based executive recruitment company and we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. And certainly if you have any recruitment requirements in your organisation that we can help you with, I'd love the opportunity to have a chat to you about that. Likewise, if you think that your CEO or chair may make an interesting guest for the Arate podcast, please reach out and let's have a conversation about how we can potentially make that happen. Great. Let's get on now and introduce our guest for today, Nino Demarco. Music Nino Demarco is the CEO of the Royal Flying Doctor Service Queensland, a role that he's held for almost 10 years. In addition, he is chairman of Horizon Housing Company and a director of the Brisbane South Primary Health Network. Nino has a Bachelor of Economics and is a graduate of the AICD Company Directors course. Nino lives in Brisbane with his wife and children and now his grandchildren. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Nino DiMarco. Nino, thanks very much for joining us on the Aratay podcast. It's a Friday morning here. Um, in sunny Brisbane, very warm day today, and uh, so I appreciate you taking the time.
1: Thank you very much, I look forward to it. Excellent.
0: Uh, So Nino, um, uh, you've listened to a podcast and uh, really what this is about is for an audience of aspiring C-suite and uh, non-executive professionals, uh, keen to learn about your own career and some of the uh, things that you've done that which have enabled you to reach your current role. Uh, what we might do just to start off is tell us a little bit about your current range of professional responsibilities.
1: Okay, uh, so in my current role uh, as CEO of Royal Flying Doctor Service, uh, we're, which is the Queensland section. Mm-hmm. Our RFDS is a federated structure, so uh, we're separate companies, but we all share the brand and operate. I uh, report to a board here in Queensland. Um, And so that's my day-to-day activities, but essentially my role here obviously is to take the organisation and strategic direction uh, into the future in a a very sustainable way. Mm -hmm. Um, And Aeromedical Services is what we do, Um, however there's a whole range of different sort of programs we're involved in. So it is about what most people know the RFDS to be, which is the Emergency Retrieval Component. Mm but also we do move a lot of patients around the state from smaller hospitals to the main tertiary hospitals. And then we have a whole range of different primary healthcare programs. So for instance, we'll take a doctor and nurse out to various uh, clinic locations Mm -hmm. from our bases in Charleville, Mount Isa and Cairns into the rural and remote areas of uh, Queensland. Mm -hmm. Um, And a whole range of other programs really targeting uh, chronic disease, diabetes, uh, mental health, and Indigenous health. Mm-hmm. Um, so the um, the idea is has our has our vision is the you know, finest care for the, to the furthest corner. Right. Um, and so we're trying to essentially fill the gaps.
0: Okay. And so even though you share the brand, you operate completely independently from. Royal Flying Doctors in other states of Australia. That's right, Right. that's right.
1: Uh, Imagine um, the organization that I head up is a a separate company. Right. um, And uh, we have a separate company that uh, uh, looks after all the activities in places like New South Wales. Mm -hmm. uh, Same sort of uh, arrangement in South Australia and Western Australia. Right. So we organize our our own business, but what we do do is work together. Right. I sit on a uh, national executive Mm Uh, and we meet on a regular basis to see what we can do together okay. collectively. That's going to make it a lot easier, so right. more seamless, consistent, and hopefully also competitive. Sure. And you uh, sit on a number of uh, other boards as well. I do. Uh, I'm very interested, uh, particularly in governance, mm-hmm. uh, governance and strategy. I guess you know, from a point of view, how do organisations really make a difference? Yep. You know, in delivering whatever services they're delivering. And so the importance to me uh, is any organisation which is ultimately a system. Uh, uh, it's important to have a governance system around that, and I'm very interested, particularly from a board. Mm-hmm. Um, the old adage, you know, that fish rots from the head. Yes. Um, so if if the board structure and the, and the board composition and the board strategies are Appropriate, aligned, mm-hmm. and they're working very carefully with the management team in a in a in a coordinated fashion. Mm-hmm. If that's all right, then generally the rest of the organisation will, will feel that energy sure. and, and and flow through. Mm-hmm. So I do sit on on another board, uh, which is uh, which I I'm chair of, uh, which is called Horizon Housing, yes. and that's in the affordable housing, social housing sector. It's a mm-hmm. not for profit as well, and uh, also uh, I'm a board member of the Primary Health Networks, which right. are the Uh, offshoots of the Medicare locals as part of the primary health care networks. Sure.
0: So uh, very much uh, within that uh, health and uh, uh, not-for-profit space, um, rather than being on boards of unrelated industries. Uh,
1: My background is is quite diverse, Mm. I guess, uh, in looking at that. So I spent uh, over 20 years in the commercial sector in working in the property, in the banking, Mm -hmm. commercial banking area. Uh, I still see that as a major component of what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, my training is in economics, and so you know, I have, a, if you like, a commercial business sort sure. of background and, 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 and uh, qualifications. Um, and I see that really, uh, whether you're in the not-for-profit, the governance sector, or in the commercial sector, the systems and, and attitudes and decision-making processes in my view uh identical Mm. uh the only difference is as to why you do it sure Uh,
0: yeah uh, i mean as you know i do a lot of uh recruiting in the nfp sector both in the executive and in the non-executive space and uh i mean the reality is uh you have to operate these businesses exactly like a commercial enterprise uh there's a lot of competition in the space there's a lot of money there's a lot of employees so uh you know it's as you say it's just a, a different uh style of outcome uh, rather than a completely different sort of business mindset.
1: Yeah, mm. I totally agree. I, I think when I look back uh, either uh, through through my commercial time, there was a period when I went out on my own and we did uh, in partnership with some property development mm-hmm. um, and also in the not for profit space. Uh, the experiences that you pick up through that whole process, it's amazing how. They are extremely transferable, Mm -hmm. Um, and so from my point of view, looking in the not-for-profit sector, which I've been in uh, a lot in the last 10 years, I think the more and more that the not-for-profit sector looks at the best practice business principles that are are out there, what works Mm -hmm. um, in the business sector, not that business has all the answers, because there's a lot of really good stuff happening in the not-for-profit sector, but I think it's that ability to cross over, look look to the other side of it for both. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, we'll uh, come to talking about a lot of those things uh, in this conversation, I'm sure, but let's uh, start where it all begins. So uh, tell us about where you were born and your sort of early family life, et cetera, schooling.
1: Right. Um, I was born here in Brisbane uh-huh. um, and uh, in Paddington. Okay. Uh, so I'm an old Paddo boy. Uh, i very proud. Paddington was very different when I was growing up there mm-hmm. It was a very working class area, sure. um, and I worked just around I lived. My parents are still there, around the corner from the Paddo pub. Okay, um, so uh, certainly very very different. Uh, Grow up in Paddington, went to school uh, at uh, Marist at Rosalie. Yes, uh, through to year twelve, um, and uh, you know that period of time was uh, I think a very formative time. Until sure. I,
0: and what sort of things? What uh, type of work were your parents involved in?
1: My father spent most of his time uh, working. Uh, has a uh, initially when he, he emigrated from from uh, Italy in yes. uh, 1952. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Went and did what a lot of uh, Italian immigrants do, which is uh, went up north and uh, cut cane. Yeah. Uh, and uh, when I look back on that, I can tell you this is this is a lot easier to do than that. Oh, for sure. Um, and so he, he did that for a couple of seasons, and then my mother came out about 18 months later, and um, then spent most of his time as a paddle beater, okay. uh, working in, in the paddle beating game.
0: Okay, yeah. right. And brothers and sisters?
1: I have one sister. Right. Uh, just a couple of years older than me.
0: Okay. Yeah. Is she still in Brisbane as well? She is, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's good. The, uh, the fruit doesn't fall far
1: from the tree. Uh, it, it doesn't. <laughs> uh, I've Spent quite a bit of time away from <coughs> Brisbane for various reasons, you mm-hmm. know, um, over in the States and down in Sydney. And, uh, and so, but uh, I've got to say, Brisbane's a great place to live.
0: It is, absolutely. Okay, and so, Morris Brothers, and then uh, from there, uh, off to university?
1: No, um, after I left school, I did a short stint. Uh, I'll never forget an insurance company working in claims or something like that. And I think I did it for about eight months and I thought I was going to die. Right. It's uh, just not for me. Right. And, um, but I was a musician. I, I started off as a, as a musician. I was yeah. very interested in music and and, and doing music. Uh, so for the first years after school, until I was 20, 28, I think it was, uh, I pursued a career in music. And mm-hmm. uh, so I to, took that on very seriously and uh, ended up uh, studying over in, in the States, in Boston, at a college uh, called Berkeley. Jazz school, right, um, and, uh, and then took on a professional career down into Sydney and here, uh, but mostly in Sydney. Uh, You're a drummer. I'm a drummer.
0: Right, yes. Yeah, Berkeley's produced some uh, incredible musicians uh, over the years. I think uh, John Mayer, the guitarist, uh, came out of Berkeley. He's probably one of the more recent uh, shining stars. Yep. Yeah, yep. sure. And, uh, and what kind of uh, gigs were you doing uh, during that time?
1: I think the uh, the one thing I, I remember that time is uh, it, it was a jazz, it is a jazz school, mm-hmm. um, but one of the things that, uh, the, you know, uh, studying jazz, uh, a very complex art mm-hmm. form, sure. uh, very creative, um, and uh, what I learned through that process also is to, to learn a number of different styles. So as a professional musician, I could play mm-hmm. the styles that were needed, mm-hmm. also learned how to read music and mm-hmm. doing all that. So, so to have... Um, those sort of skills and also finding out how to attain those skills and the process through that uh, and the discipline you require to do Mm. that I often sort of draw back on that Mm -hmm. over the years when I feel I've got my back to the wall on something um, I always draw back on those experiences
0: and uh, and so uh, you came back to Australia and you pretty much made your living as a musician, right up until your late twenties, I did. Right. Yes. Okay. Yep. Yep. And um, uh, and if people are listening, who are some of the more interesting <laughs> uh, people that you've played with?
1: Well, I, I was playing at a time. This is uh, I'm just trying to think, uh, early mid '80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. Um, and I played in has uh, what's called a professional musician, but a freelance professional musician. So. In a place like Sydney, uh, it doesn't take all that long if you're particularly proficient across all the styles and you can read. Mm-hmm. Like any business, you know, um, no one can afford you know rehearsals and all those sort of things. So, um, if you can do all that without rehearsals, yeah, um, uh, you're you're going to get uh, you know sort of gigs and, and regular income. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did a lot of that, and I played in uh, many, a lot of the uh, the shows, uh, Evita and Sound of Music, and okay. all, all that sort of stuff. Uh, Backed many acts. Uh, I and I have to say, I you know, I was, uh, I guess, I, uh, everyone always talks about the you know, um, I did a couple of years as the uh, the drummer for Kamal and yeah. people like that, and all, all the acts that were the acts of the time right Uh, and the important thing there i think is uh what i learned out of that period was you need to turn up on time you need to be professional you need to be able to do your job Mm -hmm. and you need to be able to interact with other people Mm -hmm. uh you need to be creative and uh and uh, professional and uh, deliver high quality product because Mm -hmm. that that type of act expected you know to get the best musicians available so Mm -hmm. so broadens your thinking about it.
0: Yeah, I think people have this perception that uh, being a professional musician is a wild life and uh, uh, with not much discipline and uh, lots of crazy uh, parties, etc. but um, the people who really, really make it and uh, uh, very much take their profession seriously, don't they?
1: They absolutely do. I, you know, I found with the people that I was working with, uh, we all played... In, in the Sydney environments uh, and, and the, the, these are some of the most extraordinarily creative people. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a place in Sydney called The Basement and uh, uh, the the, um, the group that really developed a real name in Australia around uh, jazz was Galapagos Duck mm-hmm. uh, and Chris Choir who was the bass player and founding member was one of the members that I played with. Right. But what I found in that sort of circle is extraordinarily creative but many musicians like in many creative people can't quite get the business side of it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I often was in awe of some of the, the people, you know, that I was fortunate to play with, uh, but they couldn't get that other stuff working. Right. Yeah. Um, and you could see that created mm-hmm. problems. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Sure. And
0: so, what uh, led you away from that uh, career in your late 20s then?
1: <laughs> so, once I reached about 28, um, by then, um, well, first of all, I was married very young, so I was 19 when I got married. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we spent uh, 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 many, about seven years before the, uh, we had a, a child. Uh, I think my parents and everyone thought there was something wrong. You know? Right. Um, so now we've got four kids. But um, uh, we've, uh, by, by the time I was about 28, uh, we had three children. Mm-hmm. Um, I was making a career out of music, uh, living in Sydney. Uh, so spending some time on the road, some time teaching, I developed uh, capability for what's called music copying, so transcri- transcribing music from a score to okay. individual things. So between all that I was making a, a good living and yeah. we bought a house in Sydney and mm-hmm. uh, we were very, you know, living a you know reasonable life. The problem with that is that uh, I spent a lot of time away from home. Sure. Um, so I just reached a point I thought, you know, I, I just don't really want to do this when I'm forty. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what do I do? you know and um I've always had an interest in economics and mm-hmm. how the world works from that point of view um, and so started just to think through you know what are the options and how do you go about it and all that sort of stuff and um around that that time, uh, took a part-time job uh, working for Westpac mm-hmm. um, and then through that just did a progression of thinking that sort of said, well, okay, I think this may be where I needed to go.
0: Okay. Yeah. And uh, and so what were you doing with Westpac originally?
1: I was a teller. Right. I was a teller. Uh-huh. Um, and I guess we've got to start somewhere. Sure. Um, so uh, that was sobering, um, you know, to be able to sort of uh, go from a, a life and, you know, experience where you're, you're proficient, you're well-respected, mm-hmm. you're, you're in a key sure. sort of group yeah. um to be Nutella right um so it, it was a uh, quite a shift and uh it took a little time to sort of adjust um but uh at the end of the day um it's somewhere to start and take it from there and at what
0: point did you uh go back to university
1: um by the time i, I turned 30 mm-hmm. um we had uh, decided we were going to move back to brisbane mm-hmm. um, and the point was basically sydney's a great place to live mm-hmm. Uh, but I was down there to pursue the, the music career and if yeah. that wasn't going to be the future, mm-hmm. what's the point sort sure. of thing. Um, so we moved back to Brisbane and then when I was 30, um, I took a, a job working for a finance company up here mm-hmm. and then started uh, the study for my economics degree through UNE yeah. uh, by correspondence. Okay, okay.
0: Yeah. And, uh, but uh, the sort of the profession of being an economist as such didn't interest you or those doors just didn't open up
1: it did interest me actually Uh, macroeconomics is what really fascinates me how how it works more than micro sure um but um to to be a an economist and Mm -hmm. be particularly a macroeconomic economist uh generally you probably have to start going to Canberra, right um and start through that whole program right um, so I, I thought uh, I was starting to develop a bit of a career into into the the banking and finance area. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the economics degree took about five years part time, mm-hmm. and by then, uh, within within six years, I'd taken on a role at St George Commercial Finance at the time as their state manager. Right. So I'd sort of been able to sort of accelerate through that process a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then obviously with the qualifications and then take on banking as a true sort mm. of career. So you were St George for about thirteen years? About thirteen years. Right. Yeah. And
0: so what were some of the you know the, the key milestones over that period in terms of how your career evolved?
1: Well I think what what was interesting uh, out of that whole period is watching an organisation at at the time that was a building society become a bank. Mm-hmm and so I'd come on at a similar time to that. So it was the transfer of the organisation from basically a state-based organisation yep. to a national company, uh, publicly listed, mm-hmm. going through the transitions and being in a position where you could actually play a role. Mm-hmm. So my role at the time was state manager commercial uh, finance, um, and and then transitioning through that, and and then the uh, the organisation that. Uh, St George uh, was interested in, in taking up uh, property in a, in a big way as part of its portfolio. Okay, and I was very interested in property development mm-hmm. and, and working with property developers okay. and, and investors in that commercial space. Right. What
0: was the uh, the sort of the beginning of the passion for property for property then?
1: Well. I think you'll find anyone that talks to you uh, that comes from banking that's had a time in, in banking, right. uh, particularly in commercial banking, is, and then moves into a property-type role, mm. everyone wants to stay there. Right. Uh, and I, uh, I, what I found really interesting, and I, I wonder if there's a connection, uh, property developers, uh, particularly people in the business you know, of a medium-large-sized businesses, particularly if they're individual self-made type people. mm mm-hmm. Um, they have to be creative, they have to be driven, mm-hmm. they have to come up with different ways of doing things. Um, and it's an exciting group of people to spend time sure. with and, uh, and be inspired with. Absolutely. Uh, um, so I found, I found it, uh, and, and property and developing and creating mm. things mm. was really good.
0: Yeah, I must admit uh, I spent probably my first six years as a recruiter specializing in the property development space. And uh, I loved it too. And I found that the personalities in that industry are quite unique. Uh, I think people in mining uh, are a little similar, but uh, but it was a great sort of profession to recruit for. Um, And it was really, you know, only because at the height of the GFC, you know, uh, 2008, 2009, that the property industry essentially fell off a cliff that uh, here in Queensland that I started to diversify what I was doing from a recruitment point of view. So um, uh, 2005, you uh, go, um, uh, you leave St. George, mm-hmm. but there was probably about 12 months before you started at the Royal Fine Doctors, is that right?
1: That's right, Right, yeah. and
0: so what, what were you doing then?
1: Well, I, I'd reached a point, I, I always, first of all, i have been 13 years at St. George, and by the time i left St. George, Um, The property division had been brought into the commercial division, and I was asked to head up the commercial bank, Mm -hmm. and so I took on that role. Um, And essentially, that's as far as you could go within that. And there'd been a number of, you know, sort of, well, maybe the next step back to Sydney type thing. Yeah. And we we contemplated that Mm -hmm. many times over, you know, the the five years before that. But Mm -hmm. we'd reached a point where we, we thought, with the kids and all that sort of stuff at that critical point that really wasn't something we wanted to do. And, mm. I, and uh, I probably had also reached the point where I felt maybe it was time to do something differently. Sure. I always was keen you know, on the, on the property and property development. Um, so we had an opportunity to partner up with someone okay, um, to take on uh, a, a few projects. Right. And so we went through that. Uh, and I've got to say, I mean, it's a, it's it's a, an amazingly interesting um, process to go through mm-hmm. um, and you can have successes and failures and we experience both uh, but the the good thing about it is um, how many different stakeholders you need to bring into place sure to make a project work mm-hmm. where well, you have a look at a, at a piece of land and you wonder could this turn into what's what's it zoning mm-hmm. go to talk to, to council and then you go through the whole process and then you get what's called DA yeah and uh, it's it's quite an exciting process and then see something come to fruition. Sure um but the reality is that uh, unless you've got a really big capital base um, then um, you know it's uh, it's a pretty limiting experience because you can mm-hmm. only do so much mm-hmm. so fast
0: and were you uh, doing a residential property yep right uh, yep. Um, house and land or no land? no units okay yep and how many yep. projects did you get uh, under your build during that time
1: we, we did two. okay yep yeah yep. um, and and uh, and one was particularly satisfying because uh, it was basically uh, an area where uh, there hadn't been unit development in the past, and uh, so uh, it had a zoning. Uh, went to talk to council and said, "Is this possible? We can yeah. do it." Yes, this is all possible. Anyway, we went through the process to, to, to get to uh, mm-hmm. to DA and, uh, and and the project. So um, that that was uh, that was very. Okay. Very good learning experience. And
0: so really um, the motivation to then return into a corporate career was because you just didn't have the capacity to take development to the level that you were keen to.
1: That's right. Right. Uh, To be able to truly set yourself up as in the property development, so you you need enormous capital. Mm. Uh, And so in the property development industry these days, I I see that uh, more and more, um, the capital source or the source of capital can be separated from the development yes uh, and, the, and, the, and the expertise to bring mm-hmm. the development to sure. fruition. But what happened was um, I, I, I got a call out of the blue, right? Uh, one of those you know sort of things that you get um, and someone that I knew uh, who, uh, who said, uh, you're interested in coming back into corporate life, right? Um, and, uh, I said, oh, not really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was quite, you know, sort of contempt from that point of view. Right. Um, and anyway, then he explained, you know, the, the, uh, the background and, uh, uh-huh. you know, what the job was and why and all, and I said, well, why do you think, why me? Yeah, sure. Um, and, uh, it was an interesting answer. He said, well, he said, uh, I think you'd be good for it and it would be good for you.
0: Right. And was he a recruiter or? No,
1: no. he was a, uh, I guess you called it a mentor. Okay. Yeah. Um, and uh, and initially I said, well, I'm really intrigued. I mean, great organisation, RFDS, you know. Sure. You know, how could you not be yeah. interested, you know? Um, and as a CEO role um, in the not for profit sector, which I hadn't been in before, so mm-hmm. I didn't really un- understand what that potentially mm-hmm. meant. I hadn't uh, had experience in aviation or health Mm -hmm. from that point of view, Um, but the driving force at the time was particularly around turning the organisation into a more business focused to be able to compete, to be able to grow, to be able to do the things that need to be done Mm -hmm. in a more sort of business sort of focus. Uh, And so
0: did you need to participate in a recruitment process uh, once you uh, determined that you had an appetite or was it... you know, here's the opportunity, Nino,
1: let's get on with it. No, no, I had to go through the whole formal process. Right, okay. Um, I've got to say, I've never been interrogated like I had. Right. Um, but uh, to the credit of the board and the chairman at the time, uh, they wanted to go and make sure they, they sure. went through the right process. Yeah. Uh, and they had... Um, Uh, brought on board an organisational psychologist Mm -hmm. uh, and um, so went through the whole interview process, Mm -hmm. psychometric testing, interviews, the Mm -hmm. whole lot.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, I mean you made a point uh, earlier about this idea of transferable skills and you know your skills that you developed as a musician in terms of discipline and professionalism, being able to transfer it then into your banking career. I suppose when they were looking at you as the potential CEO, um, given that you hadn't been a CEO you hadn't worked in the sector before you know there's a fair degree of um, risk that mm-hmm. they would have had to have been prepared to uh, take on board to have offered you the opportunity what do you think it was about your transferable skills that gave them a level of confidence that uh, uh, you'd be able to make that transition well
1: uh, I think that's a very good question um, I I just I, I approached it this way, um, having having had a career in music, and I always saw there's two things in music. There's a creative aspect, mm-hmm. and then there's the business component of music. Mm-hmm. And what I learned through that whole process, particularly if you're a self-employed person, you need to make your business work. Sure. So you need to go out there to find work and and uh, not wait till the phone rings. Mm-hmm. So you have to make things happen. So you need to develop the ability to to look for prospects who might be able to be targeted to to look for business mm-hmm. so all those sort of skills you know I sort of developed during that that period of music when I came into into banking I found the exactly same thing as a banker you're looking for new business mm-hmm. um, what is it that you need to do to find new business to understand where your customers are what sort of customers you're looking for who are you using market segments you know what is your point of difference you know all the sort of stuff when i came into the not-for-profit sector by the time i finished you know in the banking i found in banking what i was doing more and more was running a business because i was running a commercial business for st george in queensland mm-hmm. so it's all about pnl it's all about business it's all about people it's all about teams it's all about organizing and targeting and all that sort of stuff So when I came to RFDS and and they were asking, how would I approach it? And I thought, well, isn't this a business like any other business? Mm -hmm. The difference is what we do and why we do it. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, how we do it and go about it. Um, All those elements are all exactly the same. And in fact, I found through that whole period, uh, particularly in the initial startup, I didn't find it so confronting mm-hmm. that it was so different from what I've been doing before. Certainly it's different from a technical point of view, understanding the aviation sure. issues, and and the health issues and the not-for-profit issues, yeah.
0: And I know uh, that the business now is employing about 400 people. Um, you know, what, what did it look like at the time that you joined, you know, uh, back in
1: 2006? Um, I'd have to remember, but um, I, I think at the time, we might have had about 130 people, okay, right, um, and uh, maybe 12 or 13 aircraft, mm-hmm. a couple of less bases, and we didn't have quite the broad range of primary healthcare programs, particularly that we have now. Mm-hmm. And certainly turnover-wise, I think was about 30 million at the time, and right. now it's uh, just uh, over 90 million. Okay, um, so it's it's grown over that sure. time as, okay. as it's diversified yeah
0: and you uh, you started to talk a little bit about it but um you know what was the mandate when you stepped into the role you know welcome you know as our new CEO this is what we really need you to get out and make happen
1: essentially it, it was a very in many ways simple but challenge yeah uh, challenging uh, prospect which was to position the organization to ensure it had a sustainable future mm-hmm Um, And that that was one of the issues that we needed to look at Mm -hmm. is our funding models and our, you know, business models. Mm -hmm. Can we develop this into a sustainable model? Mm -hmm. And that's a a key issue. And the other one is to ensure that we have the business processes and systems in place. Um, And what the board rightly recognised at the time was an increasingly accelerating trend towards uh, the requirements, either from compliance or contract-wise. So the more we entered into contracts, the more important it was that we had the systems in place to ensure that we met the requirements Mm -hmm. under the contract, the regulatory and compliance issues around that. And so all that really needed, you know, a system and, and a business that was capable of meeting those new challenges that were coming.
0: Right, and so now almost 10 years into the role, Um, You know, if you had to hang your hat on a few key achievements over that period and say, you know, these are some of the outcomes that I've been able to deliver obviously through your team, Um, you know, what are
1: some of the things that you're most proud of? Well, it always comes back to why we do this. Sure. And the RFDS, um, I'm absolutely sold on the whole idea of why the RFDS exists. Mm -hmm. And it's all about the the ability to provide that care out to areas that don't get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, if if you talk about an achievement, to be able to have over ninety thousand people that essentially have access to care because of RFDS, mm-hmm. so that's 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 one component. And then the other component is the quality of care that we provide to those patients and clients that we we are in contact with Mm. so to me that 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 is really the driving force and the reason i say that is because we get a lot of feedback about how important the rfds is to to people in various locations in various situations and the idea that the that we are there Mm -hmm. not only to provide you know what's called the mantle of safety but also to provide the continuity of care Mm -hmm. so that's that's the really exciting part um and satisfying part and then the other one is that's all well and good, but if we don't have a sustainable business model, this this is not achievable into the long, medium and long term to be able to say, we will continue to do this mm-hmm. and, and give you confidence that we will continue to do this. Mm-hmm. And so it's that sustainable business model, I think, that's uh, really made a difference. We've got a very um, uh, sound balance sheet. We've got, a you know, um, our financials are, uh, are good, but also in terms of the quality and safety of the care that we provide. Mm-hmm.
0: So are there any particular uh, initiatives or uh, or things that we've done specifically around sustainability uh, um, which have really enabled you to have a far greater degree of confidence that the business is truly sustainable?
1: Yes, I, 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 a lot of it to, to do with our ability to be competitive, right? Um, whether we like it or not, mm-hmm. uh, and I think Personally I think it's a a great thing. Um, We are subject to competition Mm -hmm. like any organization, any business. Um, And so that really tests you out to see whether you can compete, Mm -hmm. deliver a high quality program. And so um, today we've been successful in in being able to win Mm -hmm. um, uh, competitive tenders. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of
0: people who are potentially listening to this, uh, including myself, would say, you know what would be the competition for Royal Flying Doctors? Uh, you know it, it's such an iconic brand. It, I, you know people would probably have a perception that um, it is what it is, and there's no competition in that space. So who, who are you competing with?
1: There, there are a number of competitors. Um, if if you look at the history of RFDS, even over the last five years, uh, with with competition um, in a number of fronts, not only here in Queensland but across Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the RFTS had a contract in Victoria, um, which was the air ambulance contract. Mm-hmm. Uh, that contract was put up to tender some four years ago, I think okay. it was, uh, and that particular contract was uh, was won by Pelier, okay. uh, a subsidiary of Rex. Um, you know there are other contracts that have been won by other competitors. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, are either working in the aviation space or in various specialist aeromedical type mm-hmm. um, work that is either here or overseas or, or overseas-based organisations. Mm-hmm. So we find there are competitors, um, and uh, you know aeromedical work is a particular one. In the primary healthcare, there's a lot of outreach essentially outreach programs that right. are delivered mm-hmm. by a range of different organizations. The difference, probably when people think about the RFDS, I think it's because we've got such a high profile, sure. and a high brand, mm. that it's as if no one else does this. Mm. That's right. Um, but yet it uh, it is done mm-hmm. uh, in different degrees by, by others. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, is it good for us to be able to sort of not rely on the brand mm-hmm. and the good sort of support that we get from donors and so forth Mm -hmm. but we win our business and contracts Mm -hmm. because we provide the best quality care Mm -hmm. safest quality care at the most efficient
0: price sure and um 10 years in the role as ceo what what have been some of the areas that you've consciously focused on in terms of your own uh, personal and professional development to ensure that you've uh, you know been able to live up to the role and and grow with the role as the business has obviously grown tremendously during that time, I imagine uh, you've had some um, uh, uh, personal growth as well.
1: Well, I hope so. <laughs> um, I I find um, particularly in, in an organisation, well, any any leadership role, that um, sometimes because of the intensity of the issues that you're dealing with on a day to day basis. The need to step back mm-hmm. and and try and sort of see something, see see the world from a different perspective, mm-hmm. and I'm always interested in the worldview. You know, mm-hmm. we think the RFDS is the centre of the the universe, sure. um, but actually, what we do is done around the world mm-hmm. in different ways. So I'm always interested in what's happening in different ways. And the way I've stayed, I certainly in professional development. You know, either through You know, uh, I'm a member of of a group, uh, which is what we call the CEO group, Um, and uh, we get together so people in similar type roles in different Mm -hmm. industries Mm -hmm. to get a perspective of what's happening in their world Mm -hmm. and share experiences. Um, I've done uh, professional development courses, so I've I've done some Harvard courses, for instance, Mm -hmm. where... One particular one, which was specialising in leading healthcare organisations. Okay. So having people from different parts of the world come together that are leaders Mm. in their various organisations delivering healthcare and hearing the stories and sharing that experience and then hearing the Harvard view of the world, if you like, applied across the world in different ways, Mm. um, has been really interesting to just set you back either to say, oh, well, the issues we're dealing with are not that different from somewhere Mm. else. Mm -hmm or uh, there's a new idea, you know. So that's been exciting. And and then in particular areas, I've done a couple of courses as well in, at Columbia in New York around negotiation and persuasion. Okay. I'm very, very fascinated uh, by the whole concept of, you know, what is what is a negotiated sure. situation and what is a persuasion mm. uh, and the difference and how, how you develop those two ideas. Mm.
0: There's a... Uh uh, a lawyer in town uh, Michael Clug, who I'm sure you would know who uh, runs an amazing course on negotiation and he's built a very strong personal brand in that space and uh, I've, I've, I've done that course and when you start to really understand the nuances of what is required to get outcomes you know which are win-win or even win-win-win as they talk about uh, I mean it is it's an art form isn't it?
1: It's, it's an incredibly uh, fascinating area and I think What I've learned through the whole concept of negotiation or persuasion, uh, but certainly in terms of negotiation, and there's a very good book out called uh, Getting to Yes. Yes. um, And the idea that, um, you know, whenever... Many times I find myself in a situation when I'm talking to someone and we're talking about potentially negotiating on on something and they will form a view immediately. Mm -hmm. And so they've taken what I call a position. And so you've taken a position very early in the, in, the, in, the, in the discussion. And so then there's only one way to go, one, two ways to go. Yes. Either you agree or you disagree. Yep. And then you've got conflict. Mm. Um, and rather than go down that route, what's it like if we start to talk about what we're trying to achieve? Mm-hmm. And what are you trying to achieve? What am I trying to achieve? And you might find that we're not giving up anything mm-hmm. to get what we both need. Sure. Yeah.
0: And um, where would be an example of how you've been able to utilize those skills in your role here as CEO, and uh, and get a great outcome.
1: Well, I think uh, there's 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 many different ways uh, in in uh, negotiation around funding, for mm-hmm. instance, uh, is is a, is a classic example, um, and it, it might be a simple thing to sort of say, well, look, there's this bundle of money, we need you to do this, you know, and you say, well, why is why is it that we need to do that? Well, then you start to start to understand what it is that the objective is. Mm. Um, and so it, and looking at what we're trying to achieve and then saying, well, we think as RFDS, we could bring another model mm-hmm. to the table that could potentially achieve the same outcome if you're interested, if we spend the time in talking about what, what it is that we're trying to get out of this and the objectives. And so I've seen you know, the, the funding model change around that. I think mm. the other one is around negotiating even within the Federation about issues around how do we... Um divvy up the pie, you know mm-hmm. and so we don't have to argue that it's either yours or mine or we cut it that way. you know there might be a different way of doing sure. yeah
0: okay you um uh, spoke early in this conversation about the fact that uh, the not-for-profit sector is a truly commercial sector, and a lot of the uh, the skills required to run successful not-for-profits, uh, are no different to running a bank or a development company or you know um, being a successful musician. But what do you think are some of the the um, the key differences? Uh, you know um, there are some uh, particular drivers within this sector uh, that are quite unique. What what would you say are some of those things?
1: I think the um, the first thing that comes to mind is passion. Yep. Um, uh, one of the great things about the not-for-profit sector is um, there's no difficulty in attracting people that are passionate mm-hmm. about a cause. Sure. That's the good thing. Yeah. Uh, because often, you know, in the, in, the, in a commercial and business environment, it's not unusual to sometimes hear about people that are running organisations saying, I wish I could get these people really excited about yeah. something. You yeah. know? Um, I don't see in the not-for-profit sector generally the problem with getting people excited mm-hmm. you know, and very passionate and really truly believe in whatever cause that they're, they're working mm-hmm. towards. Um, the difficulty and the challenge around that is to harness that energy and that passion and turn it into a productive sort mm-hmm. of outcome because mm-hmm. sometimes the passion can get in the way. So, you know, the emotion uh, that comes with it is the good thing, but sometimes the emotion can cloud judgments mm-hmm. and so trying to sort of think about it in a calm rational way mm-hmm. how can we achieve those outcomes while we're still feeling passionate so balancing those two things and you know to me it's the the heart and soul of the rfds We mm-hmm. can't lose that mm. what it is that we we live in and breathe and want to hold on to uh and then at the same time trying to trying to make it make make it work
0: sure and i think that that's exactly right um and particularly with this uh looming ndis uh which is having such a tremendous impact on uh not-for-profits uh thinking about the way that they can continue to deliver services uh that they're proud of and know are so important and necessary but there's a whole new commercial context that's coming into the space which has got a lot of organizations um extremely anxious
1: I can understand that um, uh, because the history in the, in the not-for-profit space is not uh, around the idea of, 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 first of all, going out there chasing business mm-hmm. and winning business and being able to demonstrate that you, you're going to be the best and most efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea that uh, in the past, you know, uh, it would be a grant and the money would be handed over to the organization as a grant, mm-hmm. then the organization was sort of left to its own devices yep. to deliver it. Yep. Um, now there's a sense of accountability, and this is where I think it's aligning much, much, much more with the business sector, mm. where particularly in the NDIS and even in aged care in different areas, and we heard mental health now mm-hmm. being... Um, mm-hmm. uh, new, new initiatives announced there, which are around the, the, the individual. So now the individual choice and the individual has the power, if you like, the consumer uh, and, and therefore then competing for that consumer's attention, if you right. like. Um, this, is, this is something I think that's going to be quite challenging. Mm,
0: absolutely, and uh, uh, we have recruited probably six CEOs of not-for-profits over the last 12 months, and I think a lot of the reason for change is not because uh, you know the CEO is not performing, but often it's the CEO saying, you know what, I don't know that I've got the capability of being able to take the organisation through this change. You need to bring in some fresh blood. Um, and the other interesting thing I think about the not-for-profit sector is that as these organisations are getting uh, more commercial and, and so on, they are attracting a different kind of person who wants to be a CEO. And a lot of the uh, the salaries um, you know, are starting to uh, not necessarily be equivalent to being the CEO of a substantial listed organization but they're definitely more attractive than they were so there is a um, there's a growing interest of people wanting to come into the sector if you were uh, advising uh, those people who suddenly see an NFP CEO role as uh, you know a possible next move for their career what are the some of the, the things that you'd say to them that they need to think about before coming to a full conclusion about that?
1: Well, I think first and foremost, um, I think anyone that's working in the commercial sector, what I often see is when they talk about the uh, NFP sector that now it's time to give back. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think if you're looking to come into the sector now, particularly for an organisation that is reasonably sized, uh, competing for business and you know uh, contracts and so forth, um the challenges are are just as great Mm -hmm. and and i'd probably say uh added to that is is then is then the stakeholder expectations in in the commercial sector your shareholders are driving the issues in the not-for-profit sectors donors often will drive it and stakeholders Mm -hmm. and they want to all have a say Mm -hmm. So your stakeholder management and your ability to connect and engage with a whole range of stakeholders is really critical while at the same time bringing all that commercial expertise there to the table as well. Mm-hmm. So
0: um, 10 years as a CEO, what would you say are some of the elements of the role that you most enjoy and what are some of the elements of the role that you actually don't enjoy very much?
1: Um, well, I'll start with the things I don't enjoy. Okay. I guess. Um, there aren't too many. Um, probably probably the, the greatest challenge is, is ensuring that everyone's aligned to your vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's internally and externally as mm-hmm. well. Uh, so it comes back to the stakeholder. Uh, an organisation like the RFDS has a high profile, high brand recognition. Mm. Um, if you're a donor to the RFDS, you're, you're, you're very supportive. Mm-hmm um and the expectations around that so Mm -hmm. to to be able to manage and and meet those expectations um, we can't overnight change the world yeah we can't bring um technology sometimes which is that's one of my great frustrations Mm -hmm. the ability to introduce technology into our service model so that in five years time we deliver a lot of services that we do through technology through all the great you know technological advancements that we've made, which you can do here in Brisbane, but you can't do it out of the or Mm. or or Baduri or somewhere like that. Mm -hmm. So that's that's probably the great challenge. Okay. Um, The great satisfaction is, uh, well, first of all, I mean, to work for an organisation like this um, and uh, to be entrusted, if you like, uh, with the responsibility to protect and manage the brand and to to see uh, the organization grow and deliver the services Mm -hmm. so we can talk about growth in balance sheet and all that that's not the important but the important thing is if we grow our balance sheet and our capabilities then what can we do with Mm -hmm. it that's the really exciting part Mm -hmm. to be able to be part of a process to take this organization from an organization that was going out there providing service to, to about 30,000 people, and now providing over 90,000 people with a whole range of different services that they didn't have in the past. Because mm-hmm. we weren't replacing, uh, it, it's not one service provider for another, it was people are now actually getting services that they weren't getting before. Mm. Uh, that's really exciting. Okay, I uh, just uh, to clarify in my own mind, you
0: mentioned this number, 90,000 people. I mean, obviously, you're there to provide services to the entire population of Queensland. So what, what's the 90,000 refer to? Well, they're the actually.
1: So we certainly we provide services to anyone that that needs it. Mm. So um, the one great thing about RFDS and particularly in Australia is that if you work, live or travel Mm -hmm. anywhere in the state, Mm -hmm. and you need the services uh, of the RFDS, Mm -hmm. then we will provide that, and it won't cost you. Yeah, that's that's the wonderful thing Mm -hmm. about this thing. Um, But the ninety thousand is people we've actually seen. Okay. so they're, they're people that have either come through our primary health care clinics, been transferred for a reason, taken a telehealth call, mm-hmm. used our medical chess program, been involved in our mental health program mm-hmm. or clients uh, referrals, indigenous health uh, uh, programs that we run in the Cape, our well-being centers, our mobile dental service so providing dental services that we didn't that people weren't getting before mm-hmm. so these are people we actually are delivering services to. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Looking to the future now, uh, if you were uh, looking five or even ten years uh, into the future in terms of your own career, what are, what are some of the things that uh, you'd like to tick off the bucket list uh, before you uh, hang up your hat and say uh, that's it, I'm done? <laughs>
1: um, well, I'm I'm not really sure. I mean, what I what I find um, is over my career through the various parts of that career, be it music or banking mm-hmm. or property or, or whatever, and now board directorships and, 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 and the role here at RFDS that have keep, continues to evolve. Um, what I've found is uh, a lot of life experience mm. you know, that you build up over that period of time. Sure. Um, a, a diversity of experience to various different sectors um at various levels uh you know at, at a ceo type level or at a board director level um the exciting thing is that all those bundle in somewhere mm-hmm. um, then the question is where are they of use mm-hmm. where where are they going to be valuable and uh who will find value in that mm-hmm. um and that's probably a question for someone else to answer right then, then for me but that's what i i bring to the table yeah um, and if it if it leads to providing value to an organisation like RFDS, fantastic. Mm-hmm.
0: But you certainly have an appetite to uh, take on further board roles, and, and you see that as a, a becoming an even bigger part of your professional life. I th-
1: I think over time, mm-hmm. uh, cer- certainly, mm-hmm. um, it, it needs to be balanced off with my role here at uh, our sure. RFDS, and so um, you know that's uh, that's my primary primary responsibility mm-hmm. um but i do find that, that component really uh extremely interesting from the point of view of you know ultimately at the higher up the the the, the um uh, uh you know the uh, place in the organization be it at ceo level or, or a board level you have a great deal of influence over the direction sure. of an organization and the ability to form strategies and develop opportunities to steer an organisation from one place to another, mm-hmm. uh, I find really exciting. Mm. Yeah, And uh, you mentioned that you've
0: done some coursework at Harvard and, and different things. In terms of the sort of next part of professional development that you're excited about, is there anything out there that you're thinking, oh, I'd really love to, uh, to go and do that or get involved in that program? Um,
1: to me it's continuous, yeah you know I remember a friend of mine said uh, make sure you're you're a student for life mm-hmm. um, so i what I try and hopefully uh continue to do is continue to look for new things that will to learn mm-hmm. um, so this continuous learning idea, what are new ideas you know mm-hmm. what what's happening in mm-hmm. in the in Australia in the world in different sectors you know can we take something that's happening in the mining sector and apply it here?" You know, uh, what I find with, with the health sector, because it's such a major component of, of uh, the economy here mm-hmm. in Australia, um, it can draw on a lot of great ideas from outside of the health sector. Mm-hmm. So not being too insular and thinking just within your space. Mm. Um, so I'm working in the health sector now, so I'm looking outside as well as in- inside and trying to sort of keep as broad a... a um, a view of the world, mm-hmm. and bring those different experiences to, to whatever I'm doing.
0: Okay, great. And uh, so, uh, all work and no play makes uh, uh, John a sad boy. I think that's the same. What's that, what's life outside of work for you now? Um,
1: look, pretty good. Uh, I I, I uh, I'm particularly delighted. Uh, our, our daughters uh, just had a uh, had a baby. Right. Uh, six weeks old. Oh. Um, so I'm a. Grandpa now, okay, uh, and really excited about that that new new sort of journey. Yeah, um, and uh, really really enjoying as much time as I can get. Okay, um, so that's really exciting. Um, look, I love I love sports. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm uh, particularly uh, interested in Premier League soccer in in England, right? And uh, I'm an Arsenal supporter. So, okay, so I probably just cancel off a lot of people here. <laughs> um, and just a absolute tragic when it comes to that. I just right. love, love the game. Um, I'm also still involved in the music, and mm-hmm. um, so I'm a member of the Brisbane Club, so once a month we go and play jazz. Yep. Uh, and, a, and a few other gigs whenever we can fit them in. And, okay. Uh, I really enjoy that, and uh, that, that sort of rounds me out, I think. Right.
0: That uh, gives you a, a pretty full life. Yes. Oh, that's excellent. So before we close out... Uh, is there anything that you'd um, like to offer uh, to the audience of this podcast? Just some, you know, of your own wisdom in relation to the kind of things they can do to uh, accelerate and f- reach their own career potential.
1: My, my advice probably. What I found is, um, is to. Think as broadly as possible, mm-hmm. so look for different experiences uh, outside of what you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could be even in, you know in, in the arts, in whatever it is, uh, in sport, but everyone, everything can draw you can draw from all these different experiences. and I think uh, being attuned to that and realizing that even if, if you're going to watch your, your son or daughter play sport on the weekend, mm-hmm. you'll see life experience or experiences there in the way people organise themselves that you can bring to your job mm-hmm. or your career. Um, and the other the other thing I'd probably say is um, I've been fortunate to have people that I can turn to that have been there, done that type mm-hmm. of thing. Mentors. Uh, mentors, very yeah. much, yeah. Okay. In, in the idea to sort of say, well, I'm going okay. through this. Yes. And then... You know what you hear is oh yeah that's not so unusual mm. um and it's reassuring yeah i think uh you
0: get a uh, sense that this is a unique problem and it's only happening to me but when you start to ask the question uh it's almost uh certain that other people have had exactly similar challenges and uh and uh, can offer you some great guidance if you just ask the question
1: yeah yeah, yeah. and and um uh, I think you'd make a good point, I mean ask questions, mm. uh, never die wondering, mm-hmm. um, and keep asking and, and uh, as uh, I remember seeing this great TED uh, podcast uh, about the why, right? Uh, and uh, just keep asking why, just why, right. but why, because why, um, until you get to the point as, mm-hmm. and you understand why. Mm-hmm.
0: Great, great advice, so uh, before we wrap it up, any final uh, comments or anything else you'd like to share or uh, do you, are we done?
1: I think we're done. I've really enjoyed this experience. Hopefully
0: it's been
1: fun for someone to listen to.
0: Yeah, look, um, uh, this uh, podcast is uh, in early days, but uh, the feedback I've had has just been superb and I'm looking forward to uh, continuing it, hopefully for a long time to come. Uh, But uh, thanks, have a wonderful afternoon and uh, a great weekend. Thank you, Richard. Okay. Well, I really enjoyed that conversation and I'm constantly amazed and fascinated by the guests I'm having on that have come from such diverse and interesting backgrounds and ended up in large corporate roles. And certainly Nino, originally training as a drummer and playing with Kamal. And then now being the chair of one of the leading not-for-profits in Queensland, as well as CEO of Royal Flying Doctors, is quite an amazing and an awe-inspiring story. I hope you have a fantastic week, and I really look forward to having you along on future Arate podcasts. Have a great afternoon.